The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. This was a machine that the Soviets were using to encode and to transmit their messages around the world. This was a cipher machine. These machines were guarded like the prize that they were. This is the heart of every intelligence agency in the world, the way that you communicate back and forth. If you can get even a piece of one of those machines, you can start reading the other guy's transmissions. You can dig into what's going on. You can find out names and places. And so we were going to steal one. From Foreign Policy, welcome to this first episode of I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week we'll feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, CIA agent Jonna Mendez is sent to a capital city in Asia to help steal a top-secret encryption machine from a Soviet embassy. Mendez's job in the operation is to fashion disguises for her team. She would go on to become the chief of disguise at the CIA's Office of Technical Service. The year was 1987, the early period of perestroika, the year President Reagan challenged Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. John is still not allowed to name the capital where the mission took place. She describes it simply as a city on the Asian subcontinent. And that's where she first meets her team members. So this team came in, and their task was to go in and get that machine. I didn't know these team members. I'd never met them. I didn't know their names. I didn't even know the name of the team itself. My first encounter with them was on a road that I was told to be on. They came rolling up in a, I think it was a Range Rover. There was a parole. A parole is a back and forth. You know, where is the, I think it was an Oberoi Hotel. And my response was, oh, it's across the valley. Let me show you the way. And I climb in this car. And there are three men in the car who I'd never met. And off we went. And I asked them somewhat naively where we were going. And they said, oh, we're going to drive by the jail. And I said, why? Why would you do that? They said, so that if we're arrested and they put us in the jail and we can break out, we'll know which way to run. And I said, okay. And that was my introduction to the team. One of the first things we did was we figured out that we had to get the Soviets out of the compound so that we could make an entry. And so we worked with the ambassador to put together an invitation to a tiger hunt. 
they couldn't turn down a tiger hunt because they were rare. We thought they would go to that, and so that would give us a window. This is a very small compound, and it was a very small group of people that ran it. I think there were maybe three people. So we said, okay, so we will get the invitation put together and we'll pick the date and the time. Then we need to deliver the invitation. And while we're delivering it, we can be scouting out the inside of their compound because this was all behind a wall. And so my boss said, okay, we're going to take apart this car seat from one of the local cars. And it had a back headrest. And we're going to take the headrest out and we're going to put a camera in the headrest, put it back in. Camera's going to be pointing out. And so if we drive into that compound, park, and then turn and make a full circle as we go out, we will have a 360-degree view of the buildings, of the doors, of the parking, of the security. So that was our plan. We had a local asset there that we had developed. We called him Tugboat. And we knew that he was agreeable to working with the West. He was agreeable to helping us within, within certain parameters. He would do some things. In order to do that, he would have to be disguised because this was not a huge city. And he was well enough known as this fairly senior police officer that we had to disguise him. So what I had to deal with when I saw this man for the first time, uh, he stepped out of the shadows in an area where there was a large temple. And I just looked at him and I thought, "I'm, I'm in trouble here because he had a particular birthmark on his face that was so distinctive that anyone who knew him, anyone who saw that would know it was him. So I was talking to an officer working in that city. And I said, you know, there's an issue here because I didn't bring any disguise. I have nothing. I had been told that this was a a photography operation for me, that it was my photo skills they were looking for. And I've done enormous photography inside the, the CIA with proprietary cameras, with large format cameras, with sub-miniature cameras that we would put in a fountain pen or a lipstick. And I got there and discovered that this was a disguise job. And so I had to start from scratch. I told the local case officer who met me, I asked him to talk to all the wives of the station officers and have them all pull any kind of makeup they had and just send it in to me for one day. I promised to get it back to them. Then I went into the station and went through all the disguise kits because every case officer out there did have a disguise kit my office had issued. And I put all of that material together to see what I could extract, what I could work with. It was not ideal at all. But the next day, when all of those materials were assembled in a kind of professional manner with clean towels and big mirrors, and um, it looked like... I perhaps knew what I was doing, and maybe even I had brought this stuff from Washington, D.C., just for him. The thing that saved that saved the day was a can of Dr. Scholl's foot powder, and that's what I used 
to basically gray this. He was perhaps in his 30s, gray tugboat's hair to the point where the hair made him look like he might be in his 60s. That was the foundation for the disguise. I gave him a silver tooth. That was from some material in one of those kits. He had a widow's peak now. A pair of glasses. He was difficult to recognize. I just turned him into a much older man, a much older man. And in that country and in that valley, he always wore a certain hat. And the hat told you everything about him if you lived there. It told you the village that he was from and his status within the village. They could read each other's hats like they do in India with turbans. You can look at a turban and you go, oh, he's from Rajasthan and he's probably a camel trader because of the way he wraps it. It was the same kind of thing with the headgear. So we switched his headgear. All of a sudden, he's from a different village. The next thing we did, we made him a new ID card, taking his picture in his new disguise. We needed a government stamp, and he said, oh, oh, he said, I know where to get that. In the post office, I can get one of those purple government stamps. I'll steal one. We said, no, 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 don't do anything like that. We got the stamp ourselves. We ended up taking that new ID card and we scoured it on the floor, scratched it, scuffed it, made it look all old and dirty. So so we had a disguised man and we had his new ID card, which looked very old, authenticating him as this new individual. Tugboat went into the compound to do just a very superficial kind of checking the locks on his own. And he did what we called lock impressioning. If you can get up to the lock, the outside of the lock, it's a way to make an impression of what the key should look like. We have people that do locks and picks, it's called. It's a little office of this Office of Technical Service. Their job is to go through security perimeters, everything, anything. After that episode, we had keys to the exterior doors. entered the CIA in the late 60s. I started out as a secretary. Then I became the top secretary in this office of technical service with no headroom, with no career advancement. And my boss said, what if you took some of our courses? Because this office of technical service, we could teach you everything about photography. We could teach you everything about secret writing, everything about audio devices, just endless. We trained people. He said, why don't you take some of our photo courses? And it was the next week. I went to this landing strip south of D.C., and there was a little twin-engine plane. They took the doors off the back. This was a very small plane. There was a harness hanging in there for one person. That was me. There was a headset. And there was a 35-millimeter film camera with a 1,000-millimeter lens. And that lens is probably a foot long. And so we flew around for a day. Down low over the Chesapeake Bay, we, we were breaking all kinds of laws. I was trying to shoot radar arrays and license plates of particular cars. And then that night, 
Uh, there was a dark room in this facility, and they turned on the safe lights, and they played big band music, and I'm developing all my film, and I said, okay, I'll stay. This will be the first day of my career at CIA. So I turned into a photo operations officer, and I traveled around the world training all kinds of people in how to collect intelligence for us with a camera. That thing about a picture is worth a thousand words, it absolutely is. And if it's a picture of the minutes of the meeting or the agenda or the minutes after the meeting, it's gold. So I was doing photography, not disguise. And then I had an assignment that just twisted everything around. The assignment that changed my career trajectory was an assignment to the subcontinent where I was first introduced to a, a, a culture that I loved. I was there for a summer, so I was there for about two and a half months. I was, I was doing photo work. And I came back to Washington, D.C., and I talked to a man named Tony Mendez. And I said, I would really like an assignment to this place where I just spent the summer. It was so interesting. The work was so interesting. Um, as a photographer, I switched from black and white to color while I was there because I said, you know, you can't photograph this in black and white. This is just like an explosion in my head, these scenes. I said, I want to go back. I want to live there and work there, if that's possible. So are there any jobs coming up? And he said, there are no photo jobs. That We already have someone in the queue for the next rotation. But there's a disguise job. And I said, well, then make me a disguise officer. And I'll end up having two skills. Our office was very often referred to as Q or as Mission Impossible. The equipment that we fielded in our technical office was equipment that we had built ourselves. There was no commercial equivalent to what we needed, and so we would invent it. Our case officers used to listen to, oh, Mission Impossible or Get Smart or some of the kind of fun pop culture spy shows on TV. We had a duty officer at the weekend to field the calls that would come in. Case officers would say, I just saw this on Mission Impossible. Can we do that? Can we make one of those? Do we have one of those? And, you know, most of them we kind of swept aside. But every now and then we'd hear a really good idea and we'd set off to invent it. Every piece of gear that we invented and fielded had a shelf life. Once you start using it, it is inevitably it's going to be compromised. And when it is, countermeasures are developed and the thing is dead. It doesn't work anymore. You have to start over. So we treated it like treasure. We treated that technology. It was treasure. We were very careful with who we gave it to. We made sure that they really needed it. We went through this requirement definition uh, exercise, almost like the military would approach it. Do you really understand what you're doing and what you need? And then we'll build it. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. So, 
Jana Mendez is part of a CIA team sent to a capital city somewhere in Asia to steal a top-secret messaging machine from the Soviet embassy. Diplomats who work at the embassy have been lured away with an invitation to go on a tiger hunt and have left the building empty. Jana's team has a key to the place. It was made by their local asset, codenamed Tugboat. She picks up the story from here. Well, the entry team uh, in the van, the four gentlemen in the back with me, seemed fairly, I would not say they were relaxed. I would say they were ready. Uh, So there's a little nervous energy. If the nervous energy isn't there, you would probably start worrying. There should be an edge to what they were getting ready to do. Um, The people in the front of the van, that would be Cooper who was driving, he was cool as a cucumber through this whole thing. He was the boss. He knew this whole scenario inside out. He had written this scenario. He was feeling good. Um, Probably the nervous person would have been our local agent tugboat. He was in the passenger seat. He had more on the line than, than almost anybody because this was his country, this was his city, this was his community, this is where his family lived. Uh, He was getting ready to take a big chance, actually. When we set out in the van to go to the Target, it was a hot day, it was a humid day. The van was not air-conditioned. I had actually asked if it was air-conditioned, and I got a very condescending look like, you know, We don't need no air conditioning, lady. Um, So it was going into the evening when it actually starts cooling down as well. And that meant that the local folks were starting up their fires to do everything from cook the food to maybe provide a little bit of heat. And it puts up something in the air that's very unpleasant. We called it uh, Schmidt. It was a combination of the fuel they were burning, which was usually some sort of... uh, Oh, excrement, that's what they use for fuel. So you had this dust in the air, it's very, very humid. Hot day is is starting to calm down, but that dust is starting to come up. So it was hard to put the windows down, but it was hard to be in the van with the windows up. And because we were wearing masks, they didn't breathe very well. While the masks looked really good, you could just sweat profusely inside of one of those masks in this kind of air. That was one of my concerns. But a team leader told me that they were tough guys and they could handle a little humidity and a little heat. Uh, What we were using was the initial technology that was uh, presented to us out in Hollywood. And it was no more or less than the basic stunt double masks that Hollywood had used for years. We had the capability to make three different sizes. We had large, we had medium, we had small. The large, I I remember, was Rex Harrison's face. Uh, The other two, I'm not so sure anymore, but they were movie star faces. So you can paint them, apply hair goods, beards, mustaches, or not, and you can make them any ethnicity that you want, any skin tone that you want. So while it might have started out Rex Harrison, it probably didn't end up looking a lot like Rex Harrison. We were also wearing gloves. We would paint them with veins and molds and fingernails, and they were very realistic. When they put on their disguises, they looked just like everybody else on the street. They just blended in. 
I not only disguised Tugboat, but I made him new documents, and he presented himself to the gate guard as a local policeman and said they were doing a series of security checks on foreign embassies. So they would be coming in. They would be inspecting all the locks on the building. They would be going through the compound to make sure that everything was in order. That was his cover story. The guard at the gate could have been a little suspicious of that story, but when Tugboat pulled out a big wad of money and said, and this is for your inconvenience, I think when the guard took that money, I don't think he cared whether it was a real excuse or a made-up excuse. That guard saw his future. He, he had enough money that he would be able to leave that job and leave that town with his family and probably go buy a herd of goats in a new house and relax. We went through the first gate. Everything was precisely planned. The Soviets were sent on a wild goose chase disguised as a tiger hunt. I mean, you should never leave a place unguarded. It was bad tradecraft on their part, but there was no one home. You know, in the van was a wooden crate. Uh, it was unmarked. It was built just to hold this piece of equipment. And they knew what the piece of equipment would look like. They knew how big, how deep, how wide. So they backed the van up to the building. They unloaded the crate into the building. Then they moved the van around to the side where it couldn't be seen from the street. All four of the guys jumped out and went inside. Two of them started going up the stairs. The other two put down ropes and pieces of equipment, came back out, got the box, the crate, took the crate in and positioned it. it. This was a winding staircase, and they positioned it right underneath that staircase. Uh, as it turned out, they were going to lower the machine into that crate on a rope. And the things that they took in, it looked to me like a tripod with legs that were in sections. They had gotten some blueprints from Tugboat. They had drawings of the interior of that building. And they were very confident in that they knew that the, the situation they would find this machine in, that they knew the parameters of how it would be protected. They thought they might even know the code to open the lock. But they took in with them a gadget that we called plasma. And plasma was a way to, <laughs> to go through a steel door with a very, very specific charge at a very specific place and break the lock. And I heard two low thumps that kind of quivered the building. And I thought, that's plasma. The numbers didn't work. They brought out the machine. I was downstairs in the lobby looking up the whole time. But I saw them starting to lower this device in that winch-like contraption that was operating somewhat like a crane. It was taking the weight of the device and spreading it out three ways. The machine itself was disappointing. You know, you, you think something that is so, so pivotal to every embassy in the world, every nationality has a communications capability. It's almost always encrypted. It's high-end communications. This looked like it might be held together with a little bit of chewing gum and, you know, wire. It was not a refined piece of machinery to look at. 
It almost looked handmade, but it was important. They were lowering it, lowering it. And one of those legs started giving away. And one of the men reached out and grabbed it and resecured it, gently put it in the box. Uh, two guys still upstairs started taking that thing apart, put it back in the quivers. They were down the stairs. They were wearing special shoes with special soles. They were wearing gloves. So there were no footprints. There were no fingerprints. There was no slippage when you're going up and down these stairs. It's like choreography. It's kind of pretty. It was called a smoking bolt operation. A smoking bolt operation in that all that was left when we were gone were the bolts in the floor. While this was all going on, a local man came to the gate and tugboat was called over to the gate. And there was a conversation. The man outside the gate wanted to come in and see someone. The man inside, our man, said that person wasn't there. He's going to have to come back. When all of this was said and done, we could not guarantee that tugboat had not been somehow identified or couldn't be identified in the future. We felt very um, uneasy about his safety when this was all done. And so we ended up, when the operation was over, when everybody was away, when the dust settled, we relocated him out of the country with his family. Cooper and I drove out of the embassy. Two of the guys drove out with us. Two of the guys chose to go over the wall. There was a place in the back of the compound where you could very easily just just almost step over the wall and drop down to the sidewalk. And they thought splitting up, they, they felt good about doing that. There was a rendezvous point somewhere. Cooper and I drove the van to a, a garage, which is where Cooper had picked it up. It was a garage where you could actually, you had light and you could take things apart. So the van went back to the garage where Cooper got it from. And we had to do a little work on it. We uh, painted it a different color. It was a temporary paint, it wasn't gonna last. Uh, there were some markings that were put on it, uh, the van. There were some license plates that were put on the van. The box, we disguised the box. We stenciled the box in a way that made it look like it had come into the country and it was good to go out of the country. And that involved some border stamps that all equipment that came into that country would receive. I believe that it went out of the country very quickly just like it came in very quickly. They didn't want that machine lying around anywhere. That was truly precious cargo. And it was driven out. I think the, the same man that drove it in drove it out. I heard later that there was quite a, quite a flurry of activity. I, you know they freaked out when they came back and said, oh, my God. I think they were very complacent. It was a comfortable place to be. They just they made a, an error when they all accepted that invitation. I was back at um, Langley for a conference. I was having a drink with um, one of my bosses, and he said, tell me about 
tell me about that operation. And I said, um, I really can't. You're not on the, it's called a bigot list. You're not on, you're not on the list. I can't tell you about the operation. So I get this look. And he said, well, how about I tell you about this operation? His understanding of it was quite different from mine, that what we were doing was a a ruse, that it was a show. It was a show to our enemy that we needed that machine. We needed it so badly that we would go in and grab it like that. A smoking bolt operation. That's how badly we needed it. He said, but we don't need that machine at all. Because there's another guy someplace else in the world who provides us all of that information, and they're breathing down his neck. So the reason we're taking this machine is to take the pressure off of that guy. They're going to say, if they needed that machine so badly, then we must be wrong about our suspicions about this other guy. And that's this the old smoke and mirrors, the games within games, the circles within circles, and you just you can get a little lost sometimes. I don't know if I set about to create a better world by working for the CIA. I think one of the things that drew me in was the idea that I could make a difference, that you could actually have an impact in surprising ways, in ways that you could do something on Tuesday and pick up the paper on Wednesday and see if it worked. There was a, a, a feedback that was not instant, but that was quick. And I found that to be very satisfying. I wanted to do something that made a difference. I wanted to help. I always thought that I could help. I thought the work that we did, did help. I thought that the intelligence that we collected was used and that it helped our policymakers make better decisions. I like very much being part of that chain Jonna Mendez is the former chief of disguise at the CIA's Office of Technical Service. Her latest book is The Moscow Rules, The Secret CIA Tactics That Helped America Win the Cold War. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon helped produce today's show. The interview with Mendez was conducted by Sarah Wildman and Dan Efron. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Foreign Policy subscribers can go to our website to hear bonus episodes of iSpy with additional excerpts and interviews. If you're not a subscriber, go to foreignpolicy.com backslash subscribe for access to all of the magazine's great content. Next week on the show... A KGB man spends 10 years in the United States as a sleeper agent. 
and then goes rogue. And so one day, I'm waiting for the train. It was probably about 6.30, 6.45. It was still dark outside, and this uh, short guy dressed in in a black coat and it sidles up to me and says, you gotta come home or else you're dead. That episode next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. <laughs>